With that said, if you'd open up now to the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 as we continue our study through this powerful epistle. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, if you would follow along with me as I read from the word of God. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would open up our understanding concerning the things found in your word. Lord, let your word speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul carefully revealed that all men are without excuse before God. He shared with us that when man decides to suppress the truth of God and chooses not to glorify God, remains unthankful to God, even goes so far as to exchange the truth of God for a lie, no longer worships God. Instead, begins to worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. The tragic consequences of these deliberate decisions is that man is given up and given over to that which he persistently pursues. He's given over to futile thoughts, to vile passions, to destructive pursuits, develops a dark and unregenerate heart. And when the long-suffering of God comes to an end, the wrath of God will then be revealed. Now in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul addresses another group of people who are additionally, equally, without excuse before God. Now there is some debate, some difference of opinion as to what group Paul is speaking to. Some suggest that Paul is addressing the Gentile moralist. That is, they're not involved with the list of sins that Paul mentions there in chapter 1. Therefore, they feel justified when comparing themselves to others. Other commentators suggest that Paul is turning his attention to the Jewish religionist. They felt that because of their rich heritage, being relatives of Father Abraham, that regardless of what they did or how they lived their life, they would inevitably experience the kingdom of God. Personally, in reading through this in its context, I would tend to lean toward he's writing to the Jews at this moment because in verse 17, he highlights that fact. But regardless of whether Paul was writing to the Jewish religionist or the Gentile moralist, that's not the most important part of this chapter. Because what the Apostle Paul wrote could be applied to any person that lives a hypocritical life. For the Apostle is now addressing not the reprobate sinner, but listen, the respectable sinner. Paul points out very clearly that the respectable sinner falls into the same category as the reprobate sinner that they were judging. Now, in reading chapter 1, 
both the Jewish religionist and the Gentile moralist would have wholeheartedly agreed with Paul's words and assessment of the judgment that was coming upon the ungodly. They would affirm the truths that he presented. Yes, the Gentiles are under the condemnation of Almighty God. They would say, yes, they are worthy to receive the wrath of God. They are a wicked and a vile race of people. At the same time, they never dreamed that they themselves would be under any kind of condemnation. No doubt God would certainly judge the heathen Gentile world, but at the same time, he was the special protector of the Jewish people. Besides, they were the chosen people of God. Consider for a moment the Jewish mindset during this particular time in history. The Jews had always considered themselves to be special and privileged, and undoubtedly, they were given special opportunities and privileges, a nation chosen by God. But they weren't chosen by God because of anything they had to offer God, because they were such an honorable nation. Actually, Moses revealed to them the truth about God's selection. It was there in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that he said to the nation, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. That is, you are set apart. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. But then he said, the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. You were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. That's why. The Jews, actually, you'll see Moses referred to them and even the Lord himself referred to them as a stiff-necked people. That doesn't mean they slept on the wrong side of the pillow and woke up stiff. It's a reference to being rebellious. It's a reference to being unbowed, unwilling to recognize God's authority in your life. When what happened over time is that the Jews began to think in their minds because they were God's chosen people, a special treasure, that that made them better than anybody else, especially the Gentiles, which was everybody else. Some of the rabbis actually would teach that their traditions were to be elevated and their teachings elevated higher and above God's word itself. Jesus, of course, condemned this. But here's some of the things that they would say. They began to say things like, God loves Israel alone among all the nations of the earth. God will judge the Gentiles with one measure and he will judge the Jews with another all Israelites, they said, will have a part in the world to come. Abraham, they suggested, sat by the gates of hell and doesn't permit any wicked Israelite to go through. The Jews argued that they were the seed of Abraham according to the flesh and that even if they were the worst of sinners and unbelieving and disobedient toward God, they would still share in his eternal kingdom based upon who they were related to. It's with that pious attitude and the tradition that had been passed down and embedded firmly in the mindset of the Jewish nation, they began to believe that everybody else was destined for judgment except them. And they believed that it didn't matter how they lived their life. It had no effect on their eternal destiny. Some of the rabbis taught, and this is sad, that the only reason that the Gentiles were in existence is that God needed someone to keep hell burning. And they were the people that would keep it going. That's tragic. That's terrible. In fact, in the Jewish culture and in their language, there was only one curse word. It was Gentile dog. 
I mean, that's like step outside kinds of words. That is not nice. Don't use that. That's a bad word. It's with that understanding that Paul now, chapter 2, he turns the spotlight on those who would read chapter 1 saying, that certainly doesn't apply to me. That applies to other people. You know, it's possible to sit in a place like this and think, man, I wish so-and-so was here. They really need to hear this. This would be a really good message for them. Not necessarily for me because, you know, I'm here. But for them, they need to hear this. And so what Paul does is he forcibly points out that the Jewish religionist is just as much of a sinner as the Gentile moralist or the Gentile heathen and even has a greater responsibility because of the privileges they were given. They were entrusted with the word of God itself. They should know better. Paul dealt with the heathen world in chapter 1. Now he deals with the self-righteousness of the hypocrite in chapter 2. And so verse 1, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. The word inexcusable, it means to be without defense. Paul was pointing out that the moralist or the religionist was unable to talk himself off from the charge of failing to live up to the light that he had. Paul already stated that the Gentile world was without excuse and the Jews were saying, that's right, they're without excuse. Yet Paul turns the tables and said, you also, whoever you are, are without excuse if you are judging others and yet at the same time, you are doing the exact same thing. That's why they were without excuse. The reason is because they were judging others to condemnation, but at the same time, they were practicing those things that they were condemning in other people. Therefore, they were just as guilty as anyone else. And that when they condemned others, in reality, they were condemning themselves. The word judge, also an important word here. It means to pick out, to separate, to determine, to pronounce judgment. It's a derogatory appraisal of someone else's character. This judgment had attached to it condemnation. They were judging them to eternal condemnation. That's how they were living. It's important also to understand, listen carefully, we are not called to judge to condemnation. That's not our position. That role has actually already been filled by Jesus. All judgment has been entrusted unto Christ. He is the ultimate authority. People aren't going to stand before you and me. They're going to stand before Christ. They're going to stand and be judged by him. Now, that is not to say that we cannot be discerning or examine the fruit in a person's life. When Jesus said not to judge others, he didn't mean that you couldn't identify sin for what it is based on God's definition. There is one Bible verse that if certain people don't know any Bible verse, this one they have memorized, or at least the first portion of it in Matthew chapter 7. And this is what Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Usually this verse is used by those maybe who are living in sin and don't judge me because 
It says in the Bible somewhere, don't do that. <laughs> but the word for judge is the word krino in the Greek. And it means judgment to condemnation. It's the same word that the apostle Paul uses. Jesus is just making the point, if you're going around judging people to condemnation, which is not your position, listen, if you're going to condemn people, you're going to be condemned. Especially, as Paul would say here, if you're doing the exact same thing. How could you judge somebody for doing something that you're doing? That's inconsistent. That's a misconception. It's actually self-deception. Jesus warned about hypocritical judgment. You remember? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. In that same context, here's what he said. Why? He asked the question, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the plank that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck out of your eye? And look, there's a plank in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Taking the place of a judge to condemnation. Listen, that's not our position. And I condemn myself if that's the case. Jesus said here, and it's almost humorous to see the picture of someone with a beam hanging out of their eye, but able to discern and find. I think I see a speck there. Hold on a second. Let me bend down and get that. You know, the speck, interesting, is made out of the, it's sawdust, the word sawdust. It's the same thing the beam is made out of. Our sin is so recognizable in other people. I can't, look at them. Can you believe that? Look how that guy lives. That's terrible. I mean, how, how arrogant is he? How do, how do we recognize our sin in other people so quickly? It's just easy for us to do. We can be so easily blinded by our own faults, not aware of them, but we can see them in other people and condemn them. Do you remember when Jesus, very early one morning, was there near the synagogue, near the temple, and brought before him was a woman caught in the act of adultery? Very early in the morning, the religious leaders, with rocks in hand, threw the woman at the feet of Jesus, and they said, Moses said in the law that she deserves to be put to death. What do you say? Hmm. When they said this, the Bible says Jesus didn't even respond initially, that he was just riding in the dirt. What he was writing, we don't know. There's a lot of theories about what he was writing. It just says he was writing in the dirt. We don't know. But he's writing, not listening. In one sense, it appeared. And then he speaks to them and he says, whoever's without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. The woman was there, but the man wasn't there. They're both in need of retribution. They both were to be judged. But you, you get the idea when you read the story in its context. This was a setup. This was all a setup. They weren't without sin. This was premeditated. And suddenly they're convicted. And they leave one by one. Jesus then speaks to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? Has no one accused you? She said, no one, Lord. And then he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The only person who had the ultimate right to condemn her was the spotless son of God. And he said, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. It's not our position to judge people to condemnation, especially you find people who are judging others but doing the exact same thing. Yes, we are to warn, we are to be discerning, we are to speak the truth in love, but ultimately a person will stand before Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse four, make a note of this verse, we'll eventually get there someday. But in Romans 14, it says, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, 
He will be made to stand. God is able to make him stand. Another thing to remember is that these to whom Paul was writing, as I mentioned, were practicing the things they were condemning. Many of the Jews at this time were living in some of the worst uh, passions and vile things. Maybe they weren't worshiping idols like the Greeks did, but they were breaking the moral law of God, and thus they were in violation of it. And that is why Paul goes on to say in verse 2, but we, includes himself, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those, here it is again, who practice. Make a note of that. He says it more than once. Practice such things. And then he asks the question, do you think this, O man? You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Is that what you think? Paul is developing an argument here. And this is the second stage of his argument. And he asks searching questions. Sometimes you can ask a question and, and that reveals what's in the heart of somebody. You just ask him a question and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus so often in his ministry would ask questions. Did you ever notice that in the gospel record? In fact, sometimes his accusers would come and they'd say, we want to ask you a question. And Jesus said, let me ask you a question. And the answer to the question that they gave would also answer their question. It would reveal their heart. And so in that case, they'd say, we, we, don't, we don't know the answer and we're not going to question you anymore. Because they would be convicted by the answer that they gave. And so Paul is asking this question and notice the question that he asks. The Jews knew that the judgment of God was based upon and according to truth. They knew that it was certain for those that lived and practiced a sinful life. And so the question is, did they think, did they assume that if they did the same things that they were condemning in others, that they would escape his judgment? Is that what you're thinking in other words? He asked the question. And it would seem that they did feel they wouldn't receive the same judgment as others, regardless of what they did. They were self-deceived. They were blinded by religious and even national pride. They didn't think it would come upon them. If the Jews commit the same sins that they're condemning in the Gentiles and falsely assume that they would, because of their privilege, because of their heritage, that they'd escape the consequences of sin, they were mistaken. And this is what Paul is trying to bring to bear upon their life at this moment. If they were, if, if that were true, if that were true, if they could somehow do the same thing and condemn others, then that would mean that God has a double standard. One standard for this group of people and another standard for this group of people. God doesn't have a double standard. The Bible says very clearly, and we'll see it, there is no partiality with God. He's not partial to one group of people. He's not partial to America. That might surprise some of you or any other nation for that matter. And sometimes we can think that. There are people who are misguided and thinking, hey, are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. I'm American. <laughs> Everybody, that's wrong. Just because you're American doesn't make you a Christian. Knowing Jesus makes you a Christian. It doesn't matter if you go to church or you carry a big old Bible or, or you, you know, have the American flag at your house on 4th of July. I mean, that doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't save anybody. It's a blessing to be in this country, but that doesn't save you. 
And this is something that we can get blinded by. We don't understand. We can think because of where we live or, or who we are that somehow we're exempt from truth or we're exempt from the consequences of sin. And then we justify ourselves, but at the same time, we condemn others. And what's happening when we do that is we're self-deceived. We just don't get it. When we become the judge, here's what happens when we become the judge of others, but practice the same thing. You know what happens? We want mercy for ourselves, but judgment for them. God, judge them, we say. But your mercies are new every morning, God. Thank you. Lord, condemn them. Lord, bless me, we say. We don't understand the heart of God. God, I want you to forgive my sins, but don't overlook theirs. Don't forgive theirs. I mean, you might not verbalize that, but you might think it. It comes out in ungodly ways, sometimes even subtle. I'll give you a real-life story. I'm not proud of it, but here it is. This week, I had the privilege of going out to the desert to teach the word to a group of men at a men's conference. Started on Thursday, went to Saturday, came home Saturday for church last night. But while I was there, it's an interesting area, and there is a coffee shop there that I had been before, just went in and went out. But this time I went in, set up, I had some time. I just want to wrap my head around what I was going to be teaching. It just so happened I was teaching on the book of Jonah. It's a great book. If you never read it, four chapters, powerful. Anyhow, I'm sitting there, and I'm studying Jonah. And, and the person waiting on me is involved in a different lifestyle. I was a little uncomfortable I was more than a little uncomfortable. I was very uncomfortable. And then there were, there were people coming in to this place, this establishment. I'd never seen people like this. I live in Orange County. I just never, I just, there were things I was like, that's great. You know, and just things that, and I didn't, I didn't know how, this place is kind of a trip. I mean, they, they give you certain things and when they give you your meal ticket, it comes with a tarot card. I didn't know that. No one told me about it. So it's a dark place. I just came for the coffee, you know? But I'm sitting there, and I find something happening in my heart. Something not healthy. There's no compassion. And, I'm, and check this out. This is how good God is. I'm studying Jonah chapter 4. You know what happens in Jonah chapter 4? Jonah's just kicking back there, waiting for God to judge Nineveh. Sitting there, man, Lord, bring it. And Jonah, in the previous chapter, had just experienced the grace and mercy of God. He was enveloped, entombed in a fish, crying out, saying, God, show me mercy and grace. I feel like I'm in hell, is what he prayed. And God heard his cry and his repentance, and the fish vomited him onto the shore. He was delivered. Two chapters later, God, smoke these people. I love your grace. It's awesome. But not for them. So I'm telling you this to say the Holy Spirit just spoke to my heart. And, and just, you know how he does. John, well, he says your name. But to me, John, I love these people. I bled. I died for these people. You need to love them too. And I was like, I'm sorry, God. I'm so sorry. I'm ready to teach Jonah now. <laughs> it, was, it was a great lesson. What I'm saying to you, sometimes we can look at people and we can just condemn them and God loves them and died to save them. Guys, our mentality has to change. We don't want to be self-deceived. 
Remember Jesus told the parable of that man who owed a great deal of money, a debt, let's put it in the millions of dollars, all right? He owed this great debt. Jesus tells a story, and the man was brought before the master, and the master said, you owe me this debt, you're going to debtor's prison. There's nothing, he could never pay it back. He had no hope. There, there was absolutely no way he could ever pay it back. He was determined to be in bondage for the rest of his life. And he pleaded and he begged his master saying, please forgive me, don't condemn me. I know I'm deserving of it, but don't condemn me. And you remember what it says? It says that the master forgave him of his debt completely. It's as if he, he never amassed the debt. It's gone. You're forgiven. You're free. Go. And he went out liberated. And then he saw another man who owed him a fraction of what he owed. And he took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe or you're going into debtor's prison. I mean, hypocrite. Then the servants brought him back before the master and he rebuked him and said, I forgave you this great debt. How is it that you have gone out and found somebody who owes you a fraction of what I, you owe me and you condemned, you wicked servant. The whole lesson was on forgiveness. Guys, listen, God has forgiven us the greatest debt we could never pay back. And he calls us, to, we're not, I'm not here to condemn people. He didn't condemn me. He's the judge. And so Paul is saying, listen, you, you who are, you know, want grace for yourself, but then you judge other people, or you who, who condemn people who are in sin, but you're committing the same sin, you do not understand God's grace. You're missing it. Paul asks another question. And he asked this, if, if, think about this. If you don't think that, that you're going to experience this, then let me ask you another question. Verse four, or is it that you despise? This is the other side of it. Is it that you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? Is that, is that what you're thinking? Are you, are you thinking one that you're going to escape the judgment of God, even though you're practicing the exact same things that you're condemning in other people, is that what you think? Or on the other side of this, do you just despise God's goodness and his grace and his forbearance and you've taken advantage of it? When he says, do you, do you despise it? It means to look down upon. It's like looking down your nose at something. Are you looking down at the goodness of God and the grace of God and the kindness of God that leads to repentance, his long suffering, and think because you have a privilege of having this heritage that somehow it doesn't apply to you? Have you despised his long suffering and looked at it and thought that God is long suffering to you because he's accepting of what you're doing? That's a misunderstanding of his grace and goodness. That's a misunderstanding of his kindness seeking to draw you to repentance. The reason why God is long-suffering with us is so that we will repent. That's why. He doesn't wish that any should perish. God wasn't showing them grace because they deserved it. They were worthy of it because they were sons of Abraham. He was showing them long-suffering because God wanted them to turn from their sins. That's why he's long-suffering. Not because he's approving of what they're doing or he's applauding it. He's actually giving them time. To repent. Do you remember the ministry of John the Baptist out there in the middle of the desert? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they came and they surrounded him. And John, he called them out. Listen to what he said. In Matthew chapter three, this is what he said. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy 
of repentance. And look at this. Do not think to say to yourselves, don't think this, don't think to say to yourself, well, we're sons of Abraham, our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. In other words, what he's saying to them is don't be self-deceived. Don't think that because you're related to Abraham, don't think because you live in this particular nation, don't think because, uh, you know, you attend a church or you have a Bible that somehow that makes you a Christian. Guys, we're justified by faith. We're justified in the finished work of Christ. That's the only thing that makes us righteous. And this is something that they did not understand. And what a danger it is to, listen, live and practice a lifestyle of sin and begin to have the mindset that because you're not experiencing yet the consequences of that sin that somehow God approves or that you won't experience the consequences of sin. Folks, God loves us. He loves us so much. He gives us time to change direction, to repent. He's not slack concerning his promises. He's just long suffering. But if you continue today, listen carefully. If you continue in a continual, habitual lifestyle, practice, disobedient to God, a lifestyle of sin, then in essence, what you are doing is you're taking advantage of the grace of God and you're deceived. You see, God didn't rescue us out of sin by his grace and deliver us from the bondage of sin and free us so that we could go right back into it and live a life of bondage again. He, he set us free. Listen, he set us free so that we never have to go back. Never. You know, see, before we were slaves, slaves to our sin, to our lust, our flesh, but he delivered us. And now because of his grace, I'm free. I don't, I don't have to go back where formerly that's where we lived. Some people do this today. The mercy, the love, the long-suffering of God, they take it for granted. In one sense, maybe without admitting it, Paul's saying you look down at it. You're despising it. You, you can see it in your You're despising it. You're self-deceived. I love the fact that it says here, and I have this marked in my Bible, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's his kindness it doesn't say the wrath of God leads to repentance. No, it's the kindness of God in that he sent his son to die in our place and the wrath of God was poured out on his son and the kindness was shown to us that we can escape his wrath. It's his kindness. When you recognize what he has accomplished and what he has done, the kindness of God demonstrated in the death of Christ on our behalf, that's the kindness of God. That should lead us to repentance. That should lead us to him. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance this morning. If you take the place of a judge, condemning people in judgment, you are committing the same things that you're condemning in others. You basically have forgotten the kindness that led you to repentance. You forgot that it was God's grace that got a hold of you. Again, when you see somebody living a life of sin, don't forget if not for the grace of God in your life and in mine, that's exactly where we would be right now. I, I guarantee you, I, I'm just going to tell you, you probably already know this, but if it wasn't for the grace of God, many of us would not be here this morning. I definitely would not be here, here 
right here. <laughs> There's no way. It's the grace of God. That's it. I know it. I'm very well aware of God's grace. And prayerfully, you are too. Paul goes on to point out that the end result of the person who condemns another in what he himself is practicing, look at what it says the end result is. Pay attention. Verse 5, we're almost through. He said, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Whether Paul's readers were willfully forgetting the judgment of God or they were despising and taking advantage of his long suffering, the final analysis, you know what it is? It's a hardness of heart and it's an arrogance or a stubbornness that caused it. There was this hardened heart, self-deception, self-righteousness that will bring about the, the wrath of God, it says. What an awful idea, by the way, is expressed in this. Think about it. That the sinner, living in a continual state of sin, condemning other people while he's doing the same thing, is in reality amassing or hoarding, like hoarding treasure or accumulating a stockpile of divine wrath to burst upon him in the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That, that's actually what you're doing. You're storing up for yourself something that's going to be poured out on you at some point. And this, please understand, this is not, Paul's not writing this at this moment to the reckless reprobate. He's writing it to those who boasted of their purity and respectable life, but that's not really who they were. It was a facade. They were going through the motions. It was a game. Paul then draws a comparison as we come to a conclusion. Notice the comparison that he draws. He says in verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But here's the other side. To those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they'll experience indignation and wrath, tribulation, anguish on every soul of man who does, that is a practice of evil, of the Jew first and of the Greek. But on the other hand, glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because there is no partiality with God. As many as have sinned without the law, they'll perish without the law. As many as have sinned in the law, they'll be judged by the law, because it's not the hearers of the law that are just in the sight of God, but it's the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul draws a comparison here between two groups, pointing out there's no partiality with God. As many as have sinned without the law, that is the Gentile, Paul called, said that they'll perish. What about the, the Jew who have sinned in the law? Judging, but they also will experience this. There's no partiality, in other words. Whether you're a Gentile and you live in sin and won't respond to the gospel, you'll perish. Or if you're a Jew and, and you have this godly heritage, you have the law, you live in sin, you're also going to be judged. There's no partiality. Man is going to be judged on what he had the opportunity to know. If he knew the law, he'll be judged as one who knew the law. If he didn't know the law, he'll be judged as one who didn't know the law. In other words, God, listen, is going to be completely fair in his judgment. Just because the Jews had the law didn't mean that they would be saved, nor because the Gentiles did not have the law that they would be saved. And at this point, it brings up the age-old question, and here it is. What about the person 
who lives in a remote part of the world that has never heard the gospel. What about that person? What do you say to them? Is God going to judge them if they never had an opportunity? What about that? What do you say to this? Now, sometimes that question can be presented by someone who's a genuine seeker of truth. They want to know. And they ask it in such a way that they, they want to dialogue about it. And it's good to be able to have an answer, a sound apologetic in response. But then there's other people that ask that question because they want to justify where they're at and how they're living. And so they throw this one out there. And this is one that comes out all the time. What, what do you say to this? Well, Paul points out that man is going to be judged by what he had the opportunity to know. First of all, it's not my place to judge somebody to condemnation. That, that's not a question that I answer because that's his place. I don't know about that. That's up to him. That, that's not for me decide, to decide. That's his place. He sits on the throne. I don't. But God will judge man not according to what they don't know, but what they do know. And in his judgment, it will be completely fair. If, hypothetically, a person never heard about Jesus Christ in some remote, primitive part of the world, I don't know their ultimate fate, but here's what I know. God will be fair and just in his judgment of that person. Because he says that. Revelation chapter 16, verse 7 says, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Period. That's not for me to decide. And I would turn it to that person and say, But what about you? You do know. You, you're given the light. You have the gospel. What do you say? Let's, let's for a moment just pause on the person out there in the remote part of the world. And let's talk about you real time right here. What about you? What are you going to do with what you know? It says in verse 13, It's not the hearers of the law that are just in the sight of God but it's the doers of the law that are justified. Paul points out another uncomfortable fact that had been conveniently forgotten. It's not enough to just be a diligent hearer or to have a degree of familiarity with the law because that doesn't avail anything if it's not a put, put into practice. The law, you think about the Jewish person, I mean, the law, they wrapped it around their arm. They had it wrapped around their head in a phylactery. They had it on the side of their house. When they walked in, they would touch it. I mean, the word of God was the Old Testament. It was all around them. They were taught from the time they were little. It wasn't just hearing it. It wasn't just having it that made them right in the sight of the Lord. He's saying, listen, we're justified. This is what he's going to drive home. And as we go on and the arguments are presented, the whole point that he's emphasizing is we're justified by faith. We're justified by faith in the finished work of Christ. That, that is what he's driving home. But in the process of leading to that final point, he's saying, don't think because you have the law that that makes you righteous. It's actually not only having it, but actually doing it. We're justified in the sight of God. We're clothed in his righteousness. But a byproduct of that is I live the life that he's called me to live, to live worthy of the gospel, the Bible says. If you're gonna seek to be justified by the law, just know this, you're gonna have to keep it perfectly 100% of the time. And that's impossible. You can't do it. You can't be justified by keeping the law. You can't be made righteous by keeping the law because you'd have to be perfect. And no one is. Only Jesus is. And so I trust in what Jesus has done. I trust in his finished work. And not just a hearer of the word, but a doer. This is where I want to close. The Bible warns us against being just a hearer of the word only and not a doer. It actually says, don't be deceived. There is a deception that sometimes we can fall prey to, that because I've heard it, I've listened to the sermon, I've done it. But, but really, that's not the case. It's not the hearers of the law, it's the doers of the law. And there are times, I think, when all of us, I know for a fact that we hear it, but we don't do it. 
and how important it is to, to be a doer of this word. Here, Paul is addressing people who are living according to a double standard. He, he's addressing people who were religious, but they, they didn't have a real relationship with God. They, they said they knew the Lord, but they lived like they didn't. Every practice of their life, everything they did, it, it did not, I mean, it just they weren't walking with the Lord. That's the bottom line. They said they were, but they really weren't. It, they were deceived. That's what he's talking about here. And here's the danger. Let me just share with you. And I wish I didn't know about this. <laughs> But I do, personally. You know, if, if you have just a little bit of Jesus and you try to mix it up in the world, you're going to be miserable. Because if you know the gospel and if you know, if you have some kind of awareness of what the Bible says and you know that right now if you're living in a lifestyle of sin, what we just read, it's uncomfortable. You're not going to be comfortable in the world. Because what fellowship has light with darkness? Don't be unequally yoked. You're going to be miserable in that place. It's, it's a miserable place to be. Oh, the other side of that is, you know, you're over here on this side and you've got just enough of the world in you to not be comfortable around God's people. Man, when is this thing over? I need to get to brunch. Mom, why'd you make me come here today? You know, it's just you're uncomfortable in this position because you, you, you know you got a little bit of the world and then, you know, when you leave this group, you're going to go over here and, you're gonna, and then when you leave that group, you just, you're double-minded and when you're double-minded, you're unstable in all your ways. You have to make a decision. Are you going to walk with him? Or are you not going to walk with him? Are you going to play games with God? Are you going to be serious with God? Listen, it doesn't, that, God's not calling us to perfection. He's calling us to obedience. He's saying, follow me. Follow me. Don't say you follow me and don't follow me. Follow me. And I'll give you the power to live the life. I'll give you the promises that'll strengthen you. I'll, I'll get you to heaven. I'll start the work. But listen, you got to be honest with yourself. Don't think because, because you sit here that, that, that that's, you know, and then you go out and live like you don't know God. Listen, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. And if you've been thinking that, like I used to think that, I pray the blinders go off today. I pray your ears are open. I pray your heart is softened and the seed of the word of God just hits good soil. And that the birds of the air don't come in and swoop it up because your heart's hard. Romans is heavy. Happy Mother's Day, right? I mean, this is intense. But it's truth. And the Bible says you'll know the truth and it'll set you free. And can I tell you, and, and mo many of you know this. It is such a liberating day when, when you're no longer living a double life. When you come out of the shadows and you come into light, when, when, you, are, when you are born again, and I mean, the Lord, he changes your life, and it, it's not just going through the motions anymore. It's not just a part of life. It is life. I can't... It's just like the, the heaviest burden, if you can imagine, just, just being lifted off your back and, and now you're walking in freedom that's in Christ. I mean, there's just, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And when you experience that and you know that, and you never want to go back to what it was. And if you have yet to experience that, what a great day to respond to his love and to his long-suffering and his kindness. I'm gonna give you that opportunity to do that today. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, uh, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know us when we're here in church, and you know us when we're not at church. You know us when we're here in fellowship, and you know us when we're on the job or at school. 
or wherever else. And Lord, there may be some here today who, like me, long ago, praise the Lord, was long ago, but just used to live a double life. Say the right thing on Sunday and live Monday through Saturday like it just isn't a reality. Lord, that's not what it means to follow you. Lord, there has to be a surrender of will to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I just, I just pray. Lord, it's your kindness. It's your kindness. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, you love us. You're not condemning us. You say go and sin no more. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ, but you have to be in Christ. So his eyes are closed today and heads are bowed. If, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today and you know who you are, it's like the arrow has been fired and it just hits you straight, the bullseye of your own soul. You know it's the Lord. If that's you and you want to get right with God, I want you to raise your hand today. Just raise it up high. If there's just one person courageous enough to say, yep, I'm not ashamed, that's me. Anybody at all today? God bless you. See your hand, bro. It's awesome. Anybody else? God's speaking to you today. Just raise your hand up high. Say, it's me. I identify with that. Sometimes we can be so proud. We don't want anybody to know that we struggle or that this is actually, you know, that is actually me. And, and, and yet, if, when we stay in that place, we just get stuck. I'm talking to the person that wants to be unstuck that wants to walk with the Lord. Not appear that they walk with the Lord and yet don't. That's a terrible place to be. But you don't have to be there. Anybody else today? The Lord's speaking to you this morning. Just raise your hand up high. Just want to pray for you. He loves you so much. And Father, for that man who raised his hand this morning, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that he would call upon you. And as he calls upon you, Lord, or returns to you from his wayward condition, Lord, that he would experience your love. And brother, as you sat there in your seat, just right where you are, and, and you know who you are, and the Lord knows who you are, just pray something like this. Lord, today, I turn from my sin. I no longer want to live a double life. I want to follow after Jesus. Not just part-time, but full-time. Lord, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit today. The promise that you made of your Holy Spirit so that I can live for you all the days of my life. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that, God hears the, the cry of your heart. He responds. It's his kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Will you stand with us this morning? Once again, mothers, we're so thankful for you. God bless you today. Do not forget on your way out to pick up your flower. Let's pray that you have a blessed day and continue in your ministry. If you need prayer after the service, I would encourage you to come forward. And there will be pastors and leaders up front.
that would love to minister to you, pray for you for whatever needs that you might have today. If not, may the Lord bless you and keep you. We look forward to seeing you in the days ahead. Let's close in a song. God bless you.